Well, the title is Chu, and um, I can tell you the origin of it, but the, the story itself is really a, a recognition of the decline of the patriarchy, which sounds huge, but it's, it really is about masculinity. It's about these destructive inclinations that we train each other to have, um, and it's in, a, in a, a unique kind of family, and a unique sort of um, symbolism or representation of that with the act of chewing. So they do have this magical ability to transform things, um, one thing into another, but it's an, it's an ability that is both destructive and creative. And negotiating that sort of becomes the story. How do we, how do we control this power to, to um, tear things apart um, while still trying to be loved, trying to be whole? This is Spillers. I'm Robert Hickman Jr. It's a Saturday, late morning, and I'm sitting on the fourth floor of the main library near a wall of windows looking out over Midtown. And Vanita Blackburn has just finished giving a two-hour community workshop for writers of color, on writers of color, on finding a voice in an environment that tends to ignore them. We talk about that for a while, and then she shares her short story, Chew. It's part of her new collection, Black Jesus and Other Superheroes, to be published by University of Nebraska Press and released this September. Well, I just did my um, community workshop. I do this twice a year, apparently now, uh, with Words on Wheels through the um, through ASU and the Center for the Study of Race and Democracy that they partnered up with. Everyone is welcome, but we're so we're solely focused on um, works by contemporary writers of color. So those are the the samples and things that we'll read together. Will always be that, and and it's, it will be contemporary. So we're not going to read many of the any of the the classics, the older works, or anything like that. Because I think they're the contemporary writers of color are a little bit neglected in in um, creative writing workshops. And even in we're in a, such a weird place, you know, in in, in politics and culture right now. You know, we're we're either extremely you know ready to embrace things, or we're afraid of the word diversity. That somehow is you know uh, has become taboo to a certain degree. So we're we're it's 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 odd. And also, not too long ago, there was the um, in Tucson the the band the the school ban on certain textbooks. Do you remember this one? No. Yeah, it was. It's not SB 1070. It was another one. It was the multicultural sort of um, ethno ethnic studies ban. They were not allowed to do ethnic studies classes anymore in the Tucson in, um, district or something like that, which is so bizarre. And Tucson is a, a, I've always considered you know even more liberal than certain other areas and that kind of thing. Fairly progressive city. Yeah. yeah, and that that was one of those weird things that happened. Certain books were no longer um, allowed to be taught to be, and those were the books that were you know by Latino writers that were challenging certain. Certain um, assumptions about American culture, or whatever it might be, 
and there was this fear created around it. Um, and that in itself, you know, is, is, is frightening, but it's alarming. And that's one of those things that also encouraged me, too, to keep trying to, you know, figure out a way to make people um, feel valued and not, not feel like a threat, not feel like their thoughts might be dangerous. They might just be important. I did see sort of a need for it. I have one of my one of my um, close friends and a former student who is now part of the workshop. She just graduated this semester for um, for her bachelor's degree, but she was always complaining about you know things like that in, in her own um, classes. She was doing the creative writing pro, uh, program, and I was I always just say, well, yeah, that's how it is. You can you should you should go to go to Vona and you should try to apply for that. And then I said, well, let's just go ahead and start a group here and let's just see what happens. So it's been slow growing, but every year it sort of doubles in, in attendance, which is nice. The hippopotamus is a There's a, there's a, you know, the legacy of, of oppression and repression and all, and it's, it, it's, it varies from one culture to another, but it is totally there. And David Mura, from the, the reading that I did earlier on, he spoke a lot about his earlier, you know, years about wanting to be perceived as white. He actually, you know, went ahead and said it, and he said that one of his friends um, told him that, I, th I think of you as a white person, and in that moment he was proud, he was happy, he felt like he achieved what he was been trying to do this whole time, which was to, yeah, isn't that, isn't that strange? But to feel that he belonged to the, to the ruling class or whatever it is by denying his Asian um, heritage and culture to the point where it, you know, it, became, it became total erasure. And that, and once he was more exposed to other other works, other writing, you know, by by people of color, and then he said especially um, about um, the African American experience because we've we're, we've been you know dealing with this for a long time in in America, trying to again assert our own humanity, you know, that, um, over generations. Um, he realized that what was happening to himself would have become you know this this. Chosen, the self-selected but also imposed kind of psychosis um, to to deny one's own identity in order to embrace another that is not even your own, and you, and you become blind to a, to a reality, and it's it's self-destructive. It's entirely self-destructive. And now, black people, black Americans, we're we're totally we have you know a very similar situation, but it's on an extreme you know level because we had to not only generations a few just a few generations ago people think that slavery goes so far, but no. And you know, just a little while ago, we had to re remind the world that yes, we are people. We are human beings entirely, fully, with our own thoughts, experiences, histories, and everything else that are unique, that are worthy of being um, documented, recorded, acknowledged, and appreciated for whatever whatever is going on. So, and but post-generational trauma is a very real thing, where you keep carrying carrying around this this repression that it's it's even taught to us. And Ta-Nehisi Coates, he speaks a lot about that too in his book Between Me and the World, I think, about what about parenting in the in the in the black and urban communities, how um, we can be very abusive to one another in the in the hopes of training children to be to 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 receive the abuse they will get from the rest of the world. So it's hell on the outside, it's hell on the inside, you know, and it's done, but it's done from with love from the inside as a way of creating the tough skin, the, the shell that you'll need in order to, to um, survive the world. It's a survival technique. But in the same way, 
it's it's self-destructive. It, it does something to to our psychosis, to our ability to feel as free and 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 safe as other people in the world. And you carry all of that with you. These are all these un, un, you know these strings that are pulling us in different directions that that other people can't see. But you come you come into a creative writing class with all of that you know carrying on you, and you're trying to think. Well, let me write my story now. And you feel like you know something's holding you back. Something's pulling back. Or is it safe? Is it you know that becomes this question. And then you try it, and, they, and then you're shot down, you know, for, and, and if you happen to have that, you know, horrible, you know, horrible moment, you know, with other students, and that will completely, you know, remove, ruin the, the, the energy to, to keep going as an artist for a lot of people. that comes as a person of color when you enter into any kind of field, um, really, but definitely one of art, one that's trying to you know, justify your reality, you know, translate your reality for all these larger audiences because it's, it, is, it is real, it is out there, but I really I'm, I am troubled by the, the idea that uh, you know, parents and, and our, our families, we, we keep trying to hurt each other, hurt the children in order to train them. That's not the, the, the way to do it. So there has to be some other kind of method, some other kind of technique to keep creating encouragement, creating um, a sense of your own reality, but not a sense of um, kind of being you know, chewed up by that reality. But the, when you say move past it, there is no moving past it. Um, it's about living in it, but not being broken by it. I didn't have that. I grew up in a different kind of, you know, I had a different kind of mother different kind of father we they were they were they were not militant at all um, I was giving a lot of freedom to to choose to do all kinds of things that I wanted to do if I want to do tap I'll do tap if I want to go to karate class I'll do karate class whatever it is if you want to be a writer okay let's go for it what's gonna whatever, whatever it's gonna be so I had a lot of um, encouragement but not everyone had that experience too And it was uh, a few years ago, I read an article about a, a real kid who chewed, who had a Pop-Tart. He chewed the Pop-Tart into the shape of a gun and was suspended from school for doing this. And it might be some other object, but I just remember a Pop-Tart that was in my head as sort of the, the real thing. And I thought that was fascinating. And I didn't get any more information from it than that. But I thought there had to be more, you know, of course, for an entire school to suspend a kid for doing something like this, even though the act itself, of course, is on the surface malicious. But it's at the, at the same time at the core, you know, um, um, this benign sort of thing. And that fascinated me. So I had to really start thinking about what is, what, what is the schools trying, what are they trying to prove? What was the kid trying to prove? What happened in his family that made this, you know, seem natural to him, you know, in the moment? And that's where the story sort of came. And it came almost whole in itself once I started writing it. This is something that I do think about, kind of that um, the hypermasculinity and how it affects people's actions and their ability to act nicely to each other. <laughs> sort of what does it look like when you're trained to be harsh, but you're trying to be soft 
and that kind of thing. So I'm always fascinated by that. But this that one story clicked in a way to me um, as a real, you know, um, the, the the whole idea manifesting in reality, I suppose. So my story, my whole collection, Black Jesus and Other Superheroes, does have it has a lot of characters that have sort of when I when I was writing that I was thinking about sort of the worst superpower you could possibly have, and how do you negotiate life with this thing? So um, Chu fit right into that kind of um, obsessive, obsessive sort of thought pattern I was having as I was putting this collection together over the years. Ready for it? Yeah. Chew. We chew in our family. It's our God-given freedom to chew what and when we want. I chewed the legs off my grandmother's piano. It killed over and crushed her 13-year-old Bichon Frise, ginger snap. My granddaddy laughed his ass off. Me and my brothers used to chew shapes into things all of the time. We turned straws into palm trees. I made a lily out of a milk carton from my brother's girlfriend. I had to be careful around the seams and not use too much saliva or it would have turned to oatmeal. He busted my lip for that one. My boy is just like us. Can't keep his teeth off of things. He chewed a plastic coin into a funny shape and supposedly threw it at some girl. They suspended him for two days for a plastic coin. I had to sit in front of the superintendent with his blood-red hangnails while he read off a statement from a teacher. Quote, because of the zero-tolerance policy, suspension was warranted after the disruption caused by the object. The student chewed a coin made of plastic until it resembled a bullet and threw it, end quote, yada yada, while yelling bang, bang, blah, blah, repeatedly until the situation escalated or some garbage. I had to sit there for 39 minutes looking at that shitstorm of a desk. It was metal and the color of every dull memory I ever had, just covered in papers, papers, papers. He held his palm above the papers and patted the air as if disgusted, as if afraid to touch anything because he knew it all linked to him somehow. One wrong move would topple it all and he'd be late for some god-awful appointment or something. I told him to let's just get right down to it. He sighed like he'd heard the story a few too many times, from the teacher, from the principal, from that big-haired news anchor, and his own bosses probably. Still, he needed to hear the story right from my boy, so that's what happened. My boy told the truth of it. I told my boy to be out with it, and he stayed quiet because kids don't know what to say without a question. What happened, I asked. I chewed the shape the teacher thought was bad. She made me go to the principal, then she brought all my stuff and called you dad, and he had to come get me. That's what he said. The superintendent dared to look at me like I coached him, like my boy is just so acutely aware of my breathing and knew every inhale and internal body gurgle and could tell the good from the bad. How is he supposed to know what gesture meant certain doom and which meant good job? Son, but he said it right anyhow. I never threw it at no one. My boy told me about that crook, that crooked-eared girl that teased him all the time about his dirty cuffs. I told him never wash your cuffs for a girl. If she can't love your grease and grit, she can't love you. Well, he washed his damn cuffs and got more teasing for the trouble. That's when he chewed that shape into the coin and supposedly threw it. I knew he wasn't trying to make a bullet and pretend to kill that girl. That's crazy. I told him to tell that pudgy superintendent what he was really trying to chew into that fake money. I was trying to make a rocket. I chew rocket ships and I like guns and tanks and I was just trying to draw a rocket. But it turned out to look more like a small bullet than a rocket. And the teacher just thought it was a bullet. The teacher just thought it was a bullet. 
boys that age chew all kinds of things. I must have chewed a cock into the side of a cereal box a hundred times before I knew what it was for. Boys just celebrate themselves, you know. It's human. But the superintendent didn't get it. He just sat there on his secretary's wide wood chair thinking, your boy is an unholy wretch that will grow up to hurt people. The world is going to have to kill him someday. He'll embarrass you and drive you indoors for good. You are an enabler. You think you're helping, but you're reinforcing terrible behavior. There are volumes of books written, studies done, talk shows even about you and your boy. There will be nowhere safe to drive except hills with no life on them. The superintendent blinked. He looked at my boy and blinked. He looked at me and blinked. He looked at the stacks of pink and yellow papers, folded and crinkled, some thin as spit and blinked. What right did he or anybody have to judge me and mine? They call it enabling. I'm enabling my son to keep on with his bad behavior. They just don't understand our lives. Maybe he did chew a bullet on purpose and throw it and push her down and kick her until she cried. We all chew to survive in this world. My granddaddy chewed up until his last days on this earth, a little foil applesauce lid. He made a teacup for my grandmother. I heard she told him to swallow it for being such a mean bastard all his life, but that's just how they loved each other. Everybody else can't know what it's like to put something in your mouth and have something different come out, what it means, the power. They just want to take it from us, keep us docile like starved dogs. They don't know anything about how we live, love, and die. My boy is innocent. My boy is gifted. characters and I start with lines more than more than just an idea itself so I know one of my, my favorite writers Zadie Smith she does this too she hears the voices or she said or she said that and, and and you hear them so clearly that you know they, they become people and you start writing in that way and I'm it's, it's sort of the same way to me or I'll see a scene um, really clearly I have no idea how this is going to go in a story but I love it so much I'm going to write it down and sort of figure out what to do with it and I'll write around it so, and that happened with a recent story out of um, the Georgia Review. It's called Ravished. And there was a scene with a, um, a little girl. She's, she's, being, she's got a little boy kicking, doing karate kicks all around her head, you know. And I just had, it just had that visual image. And that sort of represented, I thought about, like, this, that's what love looks like. This kind of weirdly violent act that doesn't quite touch you, but it's sort of you're both, you know, stuck in this kind of circle together, this little weird dance. And I, I said, this is going in a story somehow. And, that, and it was there, and I wrote around it. Other things started to um, attach themselves to it. I think when I quit my job, I was a manager at Target. <laughs> and when I quit my job, I said, I'm going <clears> to <throat> go and do a master's degree in creative writing. I think that was probably the moment where I said, you know what, I'm going to be a writer. This is it. I'm going to do it. Whatever else I do around it will be around it. I won't write around something else. Even though I say I, I had freedom to make all of these different choices, there was that still, you know, nagging sense that you will have to be financially independent eventually, so you need to find some kind of career that's going to make money. And there was no great sign above the English department that said, you are going to make a ton of money if you go, if you go into this field. So there was that kind of thing lingering in my head. And kind I, don't, of, I don't think that sign ever shows up <laughs> over an English department door. It's totally <laughs> invisible if, if it is. 
And um, so there, there was a little bit of pressure to do something more practical. So I did do a minor in business. I was originally a business major, but it was just so extraordinarily boring that I couldn't keep going with this. But I'd taken so many classes, I said, oh, I'll just turn into a minor. It'll be fine. So that's something that I can, you know, at least pretend is, is reasonable. But when you're first starting off, here's another weird thing that's happened recently. When you're first starting off, as a really young person, you know, 20 years old, you're out of college, you tell people, oh, I want to be a writer. And they're like, oh, okay. But then, you, you, know, you know, 10 years later, you tell them, oh, I've got a book coming out. They're just like, wow. So, but I'm so, I'm so new that I am free to do anything that I want to, that I do like. And that's, that's been important. I'll tell you this, that, you know, I've gotten, after the, the, the winning the uh, Prairie School Book Prize, and that announcement came out, I had more agents contacting me looking for things, you know, looking for, for um, a novel, like, have you done it, you know, can I see it, and all these kind of things. And I don't have it yet, I'm working on it, so now I do feel more pressure than I did before. And people, now people do want something from me. So that's a little more frightening <laughs> than just being able to do anything and not worry about what other people are thinking. The pressure is coming. Thank you.